0: Today is November 28th, and my guest is Daniel Klein of George Mason University. He is the author of the forthcoming book, Knowledge and Coordination, a Liberal Interpretation. Daniel, welcome back to Econ Talk. Thanks very much. So our topic for today are the ideas in your book. It uh, will be coming out in uh, December. Uh, and at the center of the book is the idea of, of economic coordination and trying to capture what economists talk about Loosely, sometimes formally, but you and I always talk about much more loosely, which is sometimes described as a market, sometimes described as complex interactions, sometimes described as spontaneous order. Talk about the underlying issue that you're trying to illuminate in this book, uh, this issue of of spontaneous
1: order and and coordination. Okay. um, So it's – About um, seeing the economy as a vast concatenation of things, um, and talking about the better or worseness of that, um, but recognizing that we don't actually see it, Um, we want to talk about the beauty of it and the improvement of it, and in that sense, the better coordination of it. The virtues of it. Yes, Uh, but at the same time acknowledging fully that we don't actually have a window on it. Um, And as you say, I talk about coordination, and I distinguish two types of coordination. One is this concatenate coordination that we've begun to talk about. The other one is what game theorists uh, call coordination, and Thomas Schelling calls coordination, which is mutual coordination. I don't really mean so much to get into all that. What I want to get into uh, is... This viewing of it and the role of allegory in that, because we don't actually see this concatenation, but we, as it were, imagine a being who
0: does. But let's back up for a minute. Let's talk what you mean about what you mean by concatenation. You and I have talked, I think, about this before on the program, but uh, and I, I think that the unseenness of this is, is crucial. Obviously, the invisible hand. Has some unseenness to it. Bastiat talks about the seen and the unseen. That a good economist yes. only sees the seen, and the uh, excuse me, a good, good economist, a bad economist only sees the seen. A good economist sees the unseen. What you're trying to do is lift the veil, which, we're, of course, in a sense, what we all try to do as good economists, lift the veil on the unseen, and but it's still unseen. You, you, That's right. You've got to find a way to organize your thinking about the complexity and chaotic nature of the world. So. What aspect of it are you trying to illuminate? Let's talk about the concatenation uh, that you, which is a form, a word you use a lot when you talk about coordination. What do you mean by that? Some of it's the what? Smithian woolen coat,
1: right? The, exactly. So talk uh, about that. So the eye pencil, Leonard Reed's eye pencil uh, description, and Adam Smith's woolen coat description both go into all of the uh, inputs and activities that flow into the making of the pencil or the woolen coat. And just, you know, beginning to list some of those, uh, and it quickly expands to throughout the entire world and in some ways encompasses all of humanity, um, as well as contributions made generations ago in terms of producing machines and ideas sure. and everything else. And so the idea of this is a vast, you know, set of ch- linkages and chains, um, it is one way to think of it, you know, to, 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 describe what I mean by the concatenation. Um, but a concatenation, it's not the concatenation. A concatenation can be the, what you see in the pin factory. Smith spoke of the spectator in the pin factory. In fact, it's one of the only times he uses the word spectator in The Wealth of Nations when he says that a spectator sees the division of labor on the floor of the factory, and he talks about one man drawing out the wire, the next man cutting it, the next one, so on. And that's a concatenation that we can delimit and refer to and then speak of the coordination of. Um, but then uh, we can take that whole idea beyond the factory, beyond the firm, to the vaster concatenation uh, throughout the economy, throughout the world even, as Smith did with the woolen coat.
0: So there's um, – what I often think about is there's order built into the fabric of the world, and it's a fun phrase because fabric and coat have something in common, but that's, that's a coincidence. There's <laughs> order built into the fabric of the world that we don't understand uh, naturally. We don't just – that's right. See that order the way we see the order, say, in neatening our desk or neatening our house up. But there is an order built into the world that, that when more people want pencils or or coats, things are set into motion that no person is in charge of, and yet, if you stepped outside yes. of it in some dimension, if you look down on it, whatever that means exactly. Because physical, it's not a question merely of distance. You know, I, I like to use the idea that, you know, get on a high enough ladder, you, you could look right. down and see it, but you can't, of course. It's,
1: Those are metaphors for abstractness.
0: Correct. So this concatenation, which means linked together, chained together, connected, um, there are all kinds of dimensions of it, as you say. There's mm-hmm. There's the connections of the people who produce the good, and then there are connections – even within the production process on one factory floor. Um, You want to give us a way to think about that and evaluate it, which is another important part of it, uh, that we might not be able to do otherwise. And you want to use allegory. Is that that correct?
1: Yes. Yes. I think we've been using allegory. And what maybe is different in my book is that I want to declare it. I want to – Unfold it and declare it. Bring and it out th- in the open. Yeah, bring it out <laughs> in the open. Um, show how it relates to a number of major topics like communication in the market or price signals, like coordination, like cooperation, like market error and correction. Um, <clears throat> and I think it's time to recognize and declare the allegory. I think there's virtues from it. So I'd also like to talk about you know why I think we should do this.
0: And one way to
1: contrast
0: your view is – which is very um, outside the mainstream. happens to be my view also, but our views are very much outside the mainstream in that economics over the last 60 years has moved increasingly toward a mathematical treatment of these ideas. And things that can't be treated mathematically don't get treated. And these ideas to me outside of a simple supply and demand diagram, which is pretty powerful, but outside of that – the complexity and the richness of what you call concatenation can't be captured through equations. And, and the allegory, perhaps ironically, perhaps surprisingly mm-hmm. to some, you're going to argue, I think, is a better way to illuminate than a formal
1: mathematical treatment. Um, I'm not so, like so wedded to holding this up against mathematical treatments. Um in fact ma- the mathematical th- treatments in a way are their own metaphors for sure and allegories and involve them um, and enough. in some sense make it clear but but they fancy a semblance of precision which i think we should you know be ready to confess not to have and to accept not having yeah so there's that element of it's the allegory. Though. It's
0: a little embarrassing, right? We'd, yeah, we'd, sure. You'd
1: rather be precise than imprecise. Rather sure, you want to be scientific. Yeah. Um, shall I go yeah, sure. into – I wanted to talk about two of Smith's metaphors. Um, he sketches an aspect of this coordination we've been talking about, and he says, it is the interest of the people that their daily, weekly, and monthly consumption should be proportioned as exactly as possible – to the supply of the season, the food supply. Uh, And so then he talks some about the marvels of the market forces, uh, and he says that in the pursuit of profit, the grain dealer adjusts price in ways that conduce to such coordination. I want to read another passage where he introduces a metaphor. And this is from The Wealth of Nations. This is from The Wealth of Nations. Without intending the interest of the people, he is necessarily led by regard to his own interest to treat them, even in years of scarcity, pretty much in the same manner as the prudent master of a vessel is sometimes obliged to treat his crew. When he foresees that provisions are likely to run short, he puts them upon short allowance. Though from excess caution, he should sometimes do this without any real necessity. Yet all the inconveniences, which his crew can thereby suffer are inconsiderable in comparison to the danger, misery, and ruin to which they might sometimes be exposed by a less provident conduct. So, <clears throat> a great quote, uh, which I don't remember. He introduces a metaphor about how the market works in a way like a benevolent crewmaster. Yes. Um, who has a kind of view, who beholds, as it were, the concatenation of the eating and, you know, the hunger on the ship and adjusts things uh, in a way to the, in a more beautiful way from his point of view. Okay. And he's, master of the vessel, the captain of the
0: ship, is uh, foresighted and prudent. Yes. And he, he looks ahead. He sees that there might not be enough. He's worried. That's right. And he, through dictate, through top down, uh, arbitrarily says, not, not so much today. Maybe we'll need it tomorrow.
1: Right. And then he says that grain de- the grain dealers in the market m- basically do something parallel. Correct. Although from different motives and perspectives. And this crewmaster... Is a miniature of the following. The individual generally, indeed, is this a quote ne- again. It is another quote and another another metaphor. I think you know this one. It's from <laughs> the Wealth of Nations, also. Yeah,
0: something about some anatomical reference. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. The individual generally neither intends to promote the public interest nor knows how much as he is he is promoting it. And by directing that industry in such a manner as its produce may be of the greatest value, he intends only his own gain. And he is in this, as in many other cases, led by an invisible hand to promote an end which was no part of his intention. So the crewmaster is a metaphor, the invisible hand is a metaphor, and by extending a metaphor, we develop allegory. Uh, The dictionary says allegory is an expressive style that uses fictional characters and events to describe some subject by suggestive resemblances, an extended metaphor. And we have seen some people do this. uh, For example, Edwin Cannon once said that the reason it pays in the marketplace to do the right thing, to do nearly what an omniscient and omnipotent benevolent Inca would order to be done – are to be looked for in the laws of value. And I propose actually developing this allegory um, and being mindful of it. And I, in the book, do do so, and I call this benevolent figure Joy. It's like a monotheistic god, you might think of it as. Uh, she's universally benevolent. She has superior or super knowledge. I don't like to use the word um, uh, um Omniscient, Omniscient um, but certainly super knowledge and also a sort of godlike ability to communicate personally with each individual. And individuals believe in Joy's benevolence and trust her knowledge and value her love and approval. So this is all in an allegory. I'm not saying this is the way it is. This is all you in You don't an think there is actually a creature or a being called Joy? I don't. Uh, I don't. I, I mean, right. I, I don't. I'm not. I'm not religiously inclined, and um, I mean, you know, I don't deny it, but you know, I don't actually think it. Like, at, you know, at home, I pray, and I really right. feel like I'm in touch with God or something. But um, <clears throat> so it's an allegory. Um, so the question is: Is it a useful allegory? Yeah, is it a useful allegory? And in the allegory, she communicates with us in some manner, and I, I, there's still more to it that I want to. Go ahead. Um, So suppose she speaks to Bridget, a baker. She she tells Bridget that perhaps she should buy new ovens or look out for better deals in flour or advertise uh, her confections. And she communicates these instructions to Bridget. And there's a sort of meeting of the minds between Joy and Bridget. Now, Bridget is again sensible to her benevolence and ethical wisdom, and Bridget feels entrusted to advance what Joy finds beautiful. She generally follows Joy's communications in the allegory that I get to write, right? Because, like, we're this is like obviously just creative writing. It's It's a fairy fairy tale. tale. The signals from Joy are embraced voluntarily by Bridget. It's not a dictatorship, at least, not my story, my allegory here. It's a voluntary choice on Bridget's part. She can go against Joy's suggestions, uh, but she might—you know—she might pay a price, just in terms of Joy disapproving of her, or something like that. Um, She, she, maybe she does so from what Smith would call her sense of duty. Um, and those communications from Joy tell her to take actions rather like the market signals would lead her to take. So when we talk about, you know, the prophet, uh, seeking Baker doing this, this, and this, and it working out good for the, for, for everybody, and it being a form of cooperation with society, that she's following price signals, and so on, um, I think that is referring back, not necessarily to this exact allegory, and, you know, we can change it and we do so as needed, uh, and we can also dispute aspects of it about what's most valuable as a way to uh, draw the allegory. But I do think that all that talk is actually referring back to some such implicit kind of construction or narrative Um, And in that narrative, there's bona fide communication. There's beholding by joy of the coordination of the vast uh, concatenation. So she's actually seeing it. We don't see it, and Bridget doesn't see it, but we're cueing off her, almost like a quarterback. And so we're cooperating that way um, in the allegory. Um, And so in that sense, there is cooperation writ large among the participants cooperation writ large that is to say among the baker among the brewer among the butcher in the sense that they're all sort of they're all let's say have common knowledge that they're all in communication with joy and trust joy and so just like you know guys on a football field as it were follow the player follow the quarterback they're cooperating. And that, that would be like a literal form of cooperation in the uh, allegory. But then we talk about cooperation through, you know, the economic system metaphorically or allegorically, which I think is a valuable thing to do. But I think we should be ready to explain in what sense it is, this extensive cooperation. Because otherwise, people will challenge us on it and point out there's a lot going on there besides actual literal cooperation between two individuals. Um and That's just not, and, and and just and accuse you of just sort of like making up feel good you know pains uh to uh to the marketplace and to liberty and so on right well there's no doubt that one of the
0: accusations against free market folk liberals in the classical sense are that they're dogmatic or um about their beliefs about the the power of the market or markets can solve every problem and um and poetic sometimes. Sometimes. But I, I'm wondering what we've gained from this allegory. So I'm going to give you an example. I'm going to challenge you with an example, and, and you tell me uh, how it's different, okay? What the allegory helps me understand. And I'm doing this on the fly. You're doing this on the fly. Um, so you may not be able to come up with it on the spot, but maybe we can talk about it and talk Sorry. through it. So uh, I use the example often in class of, uh, and I've written about it of, the time in, when I lived in St. Louis, I was going to build a, a porch on the back of my house. And um, I went and got uh, drawings for the porch. And the architect told me what he thought it was going to cost. And we went out and then bid the deal. And the bids were 50% higher than the architect had suggested they would be. The bids, instead of being in the fifteen to $20,000 range, they were around 30000 And I thought – that perhaps the architect had deceived me in the beginning of the project when he said this was going to be a fifteen to twenty thousand dollar project. I didn't want to spend thirty thousand. I wouldn't have hired him to draw the drawings. And I thought, did he is he encouraged did he encourage me with a false price because mm-hmm.
1: he wanted to sell his he drawings. He wanted to sell his
0: drawings and, and he one of the things I was buying from him was his market knowledge. I it was nice to not have to go out and sample okay. what the what the art what work builders would charge me because I didn't have any plans. I wasn't sure what they would be. So there was a coordination problem there already. So uh, they were 30,000 or more. So I thought, gee, that's weird. And then I, just, uh, I thought about it for a little bit longer, fortunately, and I realized, well, a few months before, <laughs> we'd had an enormous flood of the, of the Mississippi River. And every carpenter within uh-huh. 250 miles was busy not building porches and and decks, but was actually uh, – which is what I wanted. It was actually a porch deck combination, but, but was actually – rebuilding people's houses who were desperately okay. needy and, and and eager to see their house rebuilt. And so what that price signal told me to do was to step aside, that, that, that I was literally – it's a different metaphor. I was standing next to the person whose house was ruined by the flood, knocking on the door of the, of the carpenter, and the carpenter said, well, I'm really busy right now. I don't know if I have time for both of you, and um, I would have said, well, I'll I'll go second because it's nice to have a porch and deck, but this guy doesn't have a a roof over his head. Yeah, you ought to do his house first. And so the price signal told me to step aside, and I waited a year and then built the porch for $17,000 or whatever it was a year later because I had been induced by that price signal to cooperate with my neighbor. I didn't literally cooperate with them. That was the beauty of the price signal. I couldn't. Right. I didn't know who needed the carpenter more than I did. Right. But the price signal induced me to do the right thing.
1: Yeah. So in what you just told, there's the communication element and the cooperation element, which I would say are really based on allegory the the communi- you're saying the price told you to step aside the price didn't tell you to step aside and the guy charging the price didn't tell you to step aside all the guy charging the price told you is you've got my construction services for thirty thousand dollars that was the literal communication correct and that's all there is in a price you know you go to the store and the I could have I could have decided I want one anyway at thirty. And yeah. They could have used it. There was no signal. There's no
0: literal step aside, like you said. No.
1: And whenever entrepreneurs go off and calculate expected profits and decide investments or entrepreneurship, uh, n- you know, that's just like them doing bookkeeping and calculations in their private study. There's no literal communication at all. Um, so the only basis for c- talking about it in the way you really want to talk about it, the price telling you to step aside is in this allegorical sense as though joy were telling you to step aside. That's it's it's not the joy. Did tell you to step aside, but it's like it's parallel to joy to the benevolent allegory story of joy telling you to step aside, and that was it would be a stepping aside that was a sort of cooperation with the whole, the larger set of people um, to make a more beautiful concatenation, um, and 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 in that sense you're cooperating uh, in 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 stepping aside. So let me, t- let me tell another story, and I, I want to take it
0: because I want to get back to Joy. Uh, I think I tell the story in The Price of Everything in my book. So there's a hurricane here. This, this, is, a ha- this is mostly a true story, literally true. It didn't happen all exactly to me. It happened to a student of mine, but there's a hurricane, and people lose power. And so uh, Home Depot and other retailers have generators available for people who don't have a backup power supply already. And they're very expensive. Uh, either home De- We can imagine two different scenarios. One is Home Depot raises the price, which they often don't want to do for public relations reasons, perhaps mistakenly. But that's the way the world is right now. Uh, the other thing that happened here in D.C. was that some people bought them at the low price from Home Depot and then resold them in the parking lot, I was told, for a higher price. So one of my students told me that uh, her husband went to buy one of those generators and found that the price was really expensive and in the parking lot? In the parking lot. I can't remember. It actually doesn't matter is what's beautiful okay. about it. And she, um, her husband's a very successful business person. And I said, so he, he bought it anyway, right? And she said, no, he actually, he didn't buy him. He, he already had two backups. He'd already bought before. And the high price said, well, I'll just get by with those. And that decision, again, like the porch and the carpenter freed up that generator for somebody who didn't have any backup, who's, Freezer was about to spoil all his meat or whose kid was hungry and whatever it was. And if we think about I want to pick two Joy stories here for you out of that story. Story number one is the story I just told you, where the business person steps aside and lets someone else implicitly, perhaps through Joy's benevolence, to step aside. But we can also imagine a world where the business person says, Well, you know, I've got two backups, but I've got a lot of money. I'll buy another one, and that that person who shows up a half an hour later uh, at the high either doesn't get one or the price is so high that person says, "Oh, I can't afford it. It's not worth it to me." But yeah. that's because not because of anything benevolent; simply because the person doesn't have a lot of money relative to the first buyer. That's right. So, what's
1: benevolent about joy in that story? It's not perfect, um, uh, and that's I, that's an important insight about you know diminishing marginal utility and a dollar being more important to a poor person than to a rich person and uh you know the the this the, the free market isn't isn't ideal in, a, in every conceivable way i think it's possible that' joy's looking on and sometimes she's sorry about uh maybe her instructions would be t- that the rich guy should not buy the additional unit and in fact the market doesn't do doesn't follow what joys would do so um and i think we should admit that you know i don't think we should construct our notions of welfare efficiency and what have you or coordination for that matter uh as 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 for example as Kersner might here um to um somehow eradicate that problem or deny that problem now, you know, that could get into issues of, well, sh- is there a better way to do things? Uh, 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 some kind of contravention of the liberty principle about rationing the units or about redistributing price controls, money.
0: Price controls. Yeah,
1: or, or, or the welfare state, redistribution of some kind. And you get into comparative institutions and, you know, they have other problems. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, I just think we should deal with them honestly. Um, and you have to compromise. I mean, you have to kind of admit or confess sometimes that you know maybe what you're favoring. Let's say you're going to oppose redistribution. You're going to favor sticking to free market principles here. That it's got these limitations, or, you know, or drawbacks, well, as it were.
0: Only thing on would add to that is you're gonna you're gonna. Oppose coerced redistributions. You certainly yeah. could still have right. voluntary redistributions. Right, you could have a, a fund for poor people to buy generators out of that a charity could administer, in right.
1: all kinds of ways. That that's exactly right. And people, in some sense, are doing joy when they d- make those decisions. Uh, so it's 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 silly to then deny joy when it comes to doing it coercively. I mean, to you know, to act like that's some wild, unacceptable, illegitimate. Move.
0: So should a profit-maximizing <clears throat> business person who uh, steeped in what you and I might think of as, quote, good economics, who raises prices after a hurricane because of a scarcity problem and, an, and, a, and a, a knowledgeable inability, an, accept, a, a, an acceptance of an inability yeah. to to look into people's souls and, and figure out who needs what and simply says, the best I can do is to raise my price and let the market c- – Ration these. Let the price ration. That's these. right.
1: In a lot of cases, should, should gu- that should that person
0: feel Guilty. joyous? No, um, joyous. Should should that person? Yes, Is it a healthy thing so. for that profit motive? Is it a better world when that person says, "I'm not just doing what serves my self interest. I'm doing what's good for joy. I'm Absolutely, doing what's good for society. Absolutely.
1: At large. I think that you know economic theory helps to authorize the pursuit of honest profit, and ought to you know, give the guy who makes a lot of honest profit a strong sense that, you know, I've done my best to serve universal benevolence. I, I really couldn't have done it a better way. I'm glad I made all these profits, and I understand how it conduces to the coordination of the larger concatenation, or however you want to put it, social good. Um, absolutely that's one of the funny things about Adam Smith's books is like when he talks about these guys in the wealth of nations, the merchants and so on, it's like he kind of talks about them as though they're never going to read his book (laughs) because they're always just thinking about their profit and never thinking about the social good it does by his own description. But Adam, if they just now read your book now they can think about both. (laughs) And I guess, you know, I I would argue, I assume you would too, that, the beauty of the system is they don't need to read the book. That's right. Uh, that's right. But I think it helps to read the book. Yeah. Because there are those, you know, interstices where you don't just maximize profit, um, you know, because things aren't, you know, you know don't, don't fit the simple story or something.
0: Yeah. I, let me ask you about that. You know, the, the, fr- the key phrase, uh, 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 the key word in that phrase of the pursuit of honest profit for me is the word honest. Right, um, I think the challenge to being a a moral person who has to inevitably interact with others is that word, and so uh I've been thinking a lot about this Richard Feynman quote lately, which is he says, "The most important thing is not to fool yourself, and you are very easy to fool and so I think the danger of of this worldview that you and I share that you're elaborating here is that you will distort what you consider honest because of your, the comfort you get from thinking that profit in and of itself leads to good outcomes, that it, it makes joy happy. And it can then justify in your heart things that are probably not honest if you're not careful. Um, And so to me, that's the danger of the, Business person reading the book is that uh, the merchant thinks well, profit's good, and of course it often is, but not always. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, you, you, you're you're working for a Wall Street firm, and you convince yourself you're quote doing God's work, and therefore anything that leads to your profits must be good for the country. But in fact that's not true.
1: Mm-hmm. So yeah, and just opportunities to sort of take advantage of people's lack of knowledge and be misleading somewhat. Uh, Maybe maybe I shouldn't say misleading, but just, you know, sorry, deceptive. Well, that might, that might violate honest, but sort of not informing them, uh, when it would be beneficial to them, but less profitable to you. Yeah. Um, and you know, we can come up with other examples. So I think there's a number of, you know, I think we should talk about, these allegory, I mean, you know, we should talk about market communication and price signals. We should talk about co- uh, cooperation and so on. But talking this way, th- it affords us, um, you know, questions like, what are the relevant signals? Okay. I mean, it's by being able to talk about signals, we can ask, well, what are the revel- re- relevant signals? Uh, how do they conduce to the general interest? Um, how do they adjust when practices go wrong? Uh, If the signals start telling people to go in the wrong direction, will the system correct itself? Will it keep up with changes? Will it dig up new opportunity, new matters for communication? All of those questions are good questions and answering them is very useful and yields economic insight, but it's all based on talking about allegorical terms, price signals, communication, and so on. Um, So I, it, it we need these allegories um
0: talk well let's talk then about about entrepreneurship generally which is okay um i think when people hear the word entrepreneur in in everyday life we think about somebody who creates a new product a uh, steve jobs or a uh, thomas edison um when you use the word entrepreneur when austrian thinkers use the word o- entrepreneur they're really talking about a much richer set of discovery than the eureka moment of uh, a filament light bulb or you know something like that. They're thinking about an enormously rich tapestry of knowledge. So talk about um, what you mean by an entrepreneur and and, and a discoverer and, and knowledge in that context.
1: Okay. I do go into this quite a bit in the book. It wasn't so much what I had planned to do today with the allegory, but that's – But it certainly relates. Um, I follow Kersner in formulating entrepreneurship uh, principally as the discovery of opportunity. Uh, That's sort of his idiom, and I follow that. Um, um, He's not entirely distinctive that way, but I think he's definitely the paramount figure talking that way. You know, Schumpeter is very similar. He talks about creation more. Um, other people talk about bearing uncertainty, uh, like like uh, Knight. Yeah. Um, and then I, fo- I, I have a chapter talking about how all these relate to each other, these different formulations. Um, I don't really believe in a definitive formulation of entrepreneurship. Uh, uh, and in that way, I, I might be a little different from Kirzner. Um, <clears throat> and so this discovery, it can be, Discovering new bits of information, but maybe more importantly, it can be hitting upon a new interpretation of existing information. Um, suddenly, you know, Caruso, you know, think a simple Caruso example. And one day he realizes that he could catch more fish by making a net. And maybe there's been no new information. That brings that about. It's a sort of epiphany, an insight, the light bulb, um, and it's a new interpretation of the information he had, you could say. Is the Paul
0: Romer-ish idea of recipes, that there's nothing new, we're just figuring maybe a different way to combine stuff that we already have and see around us.
1: Yes, yes. And so the idea of like new interpretations and getting into the idea of asymmetric interpretation and how all of the knowledge out there in the vast concatenation is disjointed. Um, that speaks to some of that richness that, 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 um, I think you're referring to. Um, so what we want is, you know, not only the creative sort of searching and digging up of new information, but, um, the creative generation of new interpretations and testing and competing of interpretations. Um, Resulting ultimately in judgment, like judging which interpretation you're actually going to act on or take stock in. So I see I see knowledge as entailing information, interpretation, and judgment. Um, and I do see that as a richer kind of Michael Polanyi-ish uh, understanding of, of knowledge uh, that does go beyond what economists, how economists talk about it. Because they kind of flatten knowledge down to information.
0: Yeah, you use talk you use that phrase a lot in the book, and I think that's very very powerful. That's a metaphor too, uh-huh. right? Mm-hmm. It implies like sort of a hammering process, and what you're left with isn't necessarily a, um, you get a cracker instead of a loaf of bread. Is it's, it's, <laughs> it's drier and and less uh, vibrant, perhaps? Um, what do you mean by that? The flattening of information, the flattening of knowledge down to information.
1: There's a tendency to t- to confine the discourse to stories where everyone has the same underlying interpretation of things. Like they have this sense that there's so many possible boxes or options out there. They don't know which one it is. They don't know where they're going to get the best price or the highest wage or there's a payoff
0: matrix. That's yes. Probabilities assigned
1: and and, you know, cost to searching. Um, but in some underlying sense, the models generally assume common knowledge, explicitly or implicitly. Um And common knowledge is really a, an assumption of symmetric interpretation, that I don't know what your cards are. You hold your cards, and I hold my cards. But I know that we're playing with a deck of 52 cards, and that you have five of them, and there can be this, and so on and so forth. That's symmetric information. I know what the payoffs
0: are for certain types of outcomes.
1: Right. And so they want to confine the discourse, uh, to that kind of talk, which, um, basically, you know, leaves them, uh, not addressing these other aspects of knowledge's richness, which matter to the, to the issue very often, particularly to, I think, policy issues and the reasonableness of government intervention. Um, you know, if you're talking about a government intervention and you've kind of already assumed that there's symmetric interpretation, sort of a sense of what the options are and the possibilities and the costs of doing things, then there's a sense of being able to sort of optimize within that and maybe tinker with some of the incentives and so on, which, uh, you know, interventionist economics, you know, hopes to do and tries to do. But if you have, if there's more of this humble sense of, Actually, it's the world's full of disjointed knowledge. We all have different interpretations. What this so-called government expert says about how it works is just one guy's story, and he's got an agenda and a selfhood that he's trying to maintain and trying to lead people in a certain direction, and so he's making it sound simpler than it is. If you If you look carefully at what he's saying, you can start to think about all the stuff he doesn't know um, or can't know. Um, actually not, you can't think about all of it, but you can start bringing up illustrations about that there's a lot he doesn't know or can't know, uh, which then, you know, generalizes. Um, and so the whole idea of uh, the pretense of knowledge in interventionist economics, I think, is informed by this richer approach to knowledge, that it's more than information, it's also interpreted. You know, it's another good example of this richness is like people say, look at the internet, there's so much information. And there is. And it, there's so much, you know, so much information is now like so readily accessible. But what about the right interpretation?
0: Yeah,
1: um, yeah. information's great. Mm-hmm. But it's
0: not, shouldn't be confused with knowledge. Yeah, And people are trying to Use the internet to create knowledge. It's much harder.
1: Yeah, people, you know, there's not there's not been a lot of convergence on interpretation. Yeah, um,
0: that's that's um, that's really interesting. I, I I want to try to bring it back to joy for a minute. Sure, Maybe you don't want to, but let me. Let no, me no, try, I'm let happy me, to. Let me try. Uh, and certainly, that your description of the interventionist approach, where you've limited the number of options and you, and that you've sort of specified the trade-offs in advance. Uh, it It's a different metaphor, which is uh, it takes this enormously complex problem and says, oh, no, no, it's not so complex. It's just a technical problem. You just need to figure out the costs and benefits and weigh them up and then you can see whether interventions go to day or not. Uh, and of course, it, it's dramatically more complicated than that. Um, I mean, we'll come back in a minute. I hope to talk about the problems with simply saying it's more complicated than that. Although I think that is the correct answer, it, that has its own problems. But I want to give you an entrepreneurial example um, to try to illustrate what I understand of your your story about about this richness. So, you know, five ten years ago, um, there was a revolution in the bookstore world where bookstores got bigger, um, and I remember. My local favorite bookstore all of a sudden in St. Louis expanded dramatically, and I thought, well, that's interesting. Why are they doing it? And the answer was because they knew or were worried that an enormous chain was coming Mm -hmm. at the time. It was Mm -hmm. Barnes & Noble about a mile and a half away that was going to have 100,000 titles, and they had, say, 8,000, and they realized they were not going to be viable. They weren't sure they could be viable expanding, but they knew they weren't going to be viable if they didn't expand. So they expanded. They expanded in lots of ways. They added a lot more books. They added a stationary section. They may have added a cafe, which at the time was really novel. We were all kind of fascinated people fascinated by it. So that transition took place. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could argue well, there, was a, there was a test. It was a choice, small bookstore, large bookstore. And, of course, coming around the corner, unforeseen by almost everybody, was another competitor <laughs> called Amazon – that was suddenly going to rip open that landscape in a really radical way. Borders, which had done the same thing as Barnes & Noble, was now suddenly not able to make it. And then on top of that, we got the Kindle, the iPad, the Nook. We got this digitization of visual of, of written content that has – we don't know how that's going to play out. So at any one point in time in the story, it would look like, well – the choices between big bookstore, small bookstore, and the, we could talk about the cost and benefits, small bookstore, homier. You know, you can know the owner. It's independent. And we made all these trade-offs, and, and, we, and that this world changed radically. All of a sudden, 15 years later, we're in a world where maybe bookstores aren't going to be viable. Maybe books aren't going to be viable. We, we don't know how it's going to turn out. And I like the idea, and maybe you do too, so you can tell me, that, that this joy character is is looking down and saying yeah that was good that was good that's good too but we in the middle of it are, it's a tumult it's it's a chaos yeah. and so we don't have the information we can't foresee forget omniscience we can't we certainly can't foresee anything close to what's coming next and so you and I tend to look at it and say well you know i'm not so worried about how this is going to turn out we're both lovers of the written word whatever you want to call it, written word, the, the transmitted word. Uh, I'm not so worried about it because Joy's in charge and it'll turn out okay. Other people are panicking. They're saying, you know, Google's making a stupid, people are losing their attention span, the yeah. iPad's going to ruin this industry, no one's going to make any money. And we just say, well, in one version we say the market will take care of it. But you're saying maybe it's better to think of it as as if there were this omniscient person, creature being looking down and saying – it's going to turn out okay, and yeah, at any point along the way, these entrepreneurs are making the best decision they can with imperfect information, and it'll work out all right.
1: Yeah, we have principles which do reassure us that way. Um, principles, as long as they're still working, basically voluntarism, you know, voluntary choice, buying and abstention from buying in the marketplace. Um, that does give us a lot of reason to believe that what will thrive will be good and what will perish, you know, should perish in joy's eyes. Um, and that's a good example. The borders example, just to pick up on it, um, that's an, that's another area of allegory uh, or relates to one. Um, and that's market correction, market error and correction, I should say. And I think we would tell the stories, economists, about... Borders moving in a certain direction there and it turning out unprofitable and it having been a market error, which then gets corrected. It, it's withdrawn and their activities are reformed. Um, that manner of speaking, again, I think is principally allegorical. It could be that the person who decided to enter there, the Mr. Borders, whoever that is, okay, the chief of Borders, he may have been, he may have looked back later and said, oh, well, this didn't turn out well in ex Post. I see I did the wrong thing. But he also might feel that, well, from what I knew going into it, I don't think I made a, a bad decision. I couldn't see this, you know, it wasn't, it was reasonably, reasonable of me not to be thinking that Amazon would be so tough. Um, and he may not actually regret in that sense, just like a poker player. He makes a play and it's a good play, but the, yeah, but the other guy draws a good draw and, uh, you, you know, you have a bad beat. You don't say you made an error, right? You just lost, just like Borders perhaps made losses. He might feel that way. And I say that if he felt that way, we would not say that he erred. Correct. And so it's possible that we have market error without any actual agent error. Agreed. And this is something a Kersner disagrees with me on. Um, and... So in what sense do we have error at all if there is no actual agent error and I say it's a joy error if joy were giving instructions and told Mr Borders to go open those Borders bookstores she should regret that <laughs> right cuz she has knowledge she knows a lot about Amazon she's she, she's right. got super knowledge right and so she would feel regret and hence to have erred
0: but but you had conceded earlier the choice, not omniscient. Well, so
1: some, I just don't like the word omniscient. No, well, it's like a, it's like a not a coherent concept in my view.
0: But one of the things I, I think it's the right level of knowledge to rule. I think you should rule that out because there was a lot of uncertainty about whether Amazon was going to make it. If Amazon hadn't make it, if Jeff Bezos had had a set of migraine headaches so and maybe it made some bad decisions <laughs> during that stretch where their future was uncertain. Borders might be a thriving competitor of Barnes & Noble and the, the Kindle wouldn't have been invented. And we can imagine a, a yeah. set of futures where the Borders CEO made all the right decisions.
1: Right. You don't – yeah. You don't beat yourself up over every decision that doesn't turn out well.
0: So I, 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 I like the idea of saying that Joy doesn't know exactly how that's going to turn well, out either.
1: Well, I don't – I, I'm not committed to saying she knows exactly, but I do want to. When we talk about market error there, I do want to talk about joy knowing enough that if she had told them to do that, she would look back and say, Oh my goodness, I overlooked that interpretation where that would turn out badly and I should have seen it. That's what an error is. And so uh, just to sustain that talk of market error and correction. um, You know, I think we do want to uh, impute that much knowledge, some of that knowledge to joy.
0: So what does this have to do with the case for liberty? What's Um, the advantages and disadvantages of this allegorical approach to ruling out certain intervention or justifying certain intervention?
1: Um, Okay. Talk about that. Sure. Um, Well, I think classical liberal economists have often sort of denied allegory. And I do think there are problems with doing that. They might play into the role of someone who's unattuned to the social, to social embeddedness, to social effects. And again, in in, in issues of maybe the welfare state or maybe local externalities based on, you know, uh, the opening of a strip joint or, you know, different kinds of things, when – Classical liberal economists just sort of like are un- unwilling to talk about certain effects and certain social consequences. I think they're playing into this caricature of them, which unfortunately isn't as much of a caricature <laughs> as it should be, um, that they're sort of unattuned to the social. Because the allegorical represents the social. Um, I mean, these social things – are, are sort of implicitly allegorical things. Like Thatcher said, there's no such thing as society. And in the literal sense, we understand what she means, but we do talk about society and we do talk about social um, you know, effects and, and things that matter across people and among people. Um, so I think they run into that trouble. I don't know if you want to... No, go ahead. Um, they nonetheless speak of market... Uh, communication, coordination, social error and correction, and so on in ways which aren't sustained by literal definitions of those terms, as we've seen with the prices, and so they contradict themselves. They fall into inconsistency, and that opens them up to charges of, what are you talking about? And if they're not ready to deliver the allegory, they're not going to be able to answer that question.
0: So does does this have anything to do with utilitarianism? So, for example, if in, a, in a sort of uh, neoclassical public finance framework, where one of the criticisms of that from the left is, "Oh, you just think everything can be put in dollar terms, and you can just add everything up, and then make a, like a green eye shade calculation." One of the things, and this is my maybe my bias working, when I hear you talk criticize the some of the classical liberal approach, meaning market friendly but without this richer understanding, they're ignoring those effects of society that you're, that you're talking about. They're, they're – they're, you're saying there's something to that criticism of, of a cost-benefit approach of, that everything has to be monetized and that none of us, none of us make decisions that way. Nobody says uh, – and I don't mean this as a, as a methodological point. I mean this as a point of – if we if we seek the good life, no one says, "Well, I'll see, I'll do what's most profitable." Uh, no, no one monetizes literally or I think figuratively their daily activities. Therefore, when asked, "Is this a good policy?" I don't think anybody other than economist says, "Well, let's add up the costs and benefits and see where the net gain is." Is that part and parcel of your criticism?
1: Uh, it relates, but I don't think it relates so simply. I think there's allegory going on in cost benefit analysis. Um, Big time,
0: yeah.
1: Um, and I think it's, again, it's not precise and accurate. It's actually loose, vague, and indeterminate a lot more than people admit and perhaps are even aware because of all the different ways you can talk about willingness to pay, different assumptions, different conditions. Um, but… I think the, 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 all this definitely does entail some kind of like social aggregation and social sense and social costs and benefits and balancing um, and 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 you know strong sort of Mises Rothbard approaches sort of deny social aggregation at all any role for it. Um, I don't want to make it sound all precise, because it's not, but there's definitely a, a sense of social aggregation in all this, and in Smith. Um, so it's so this is different than the Mises-Rothbard tradition. And but, I think that's an important development, because I think we've been sort of led into a cul-de-sac by that tradition. Why? They try to make things precise and accurate. They pretend to be categorical, um, sort of 100%-ish. Uh, in their claims, um, when they really can't be. Um, And like I say, then they go off and actually contradict themselves often. Um, And they fall into these traps that I'm talking about of denying allegory, uh, playing into the role that they're accused of. Um, Also, they're like relinquishing allegory to their opponents. Like, I, I think we need to fight illiberal allegory, not by denying allegory, but with liberal allegory. Um, And they have not, you know, these tenets of Mises-Rothbard you know, go against doing that. They actually discourage that. At the same time that I think in a way they, some of them contradict it, particularly the more, the ones who try to blend it with Hayek. Um,
0: But isn't, couldn't you argue that you know, if you're going to take the extreme modern version of the economist as technocrat, which is, I'm going to build a social welfare function. I'm going to aggregate across all individuals' utilities to get a social utility function, and I'm going to call that. Couldn't, isn't that what you're doing, really? You're saying that Joy has a utility function. She's a benevolent planner, and the people who are illiberal, the people who want to intervene in the in the market economy. They're just saying – they're agreeing with you. They're just saying, yeah, uh, yeah, we've got to take account of all these interactions and all these externalities, and I'm going to do that in this rigorous way, and I'm going to get uh, well, social I,
1: policy, uh, optimal tax rates, I and interventions. We need, I think we need to meet and engage them um, and on sort of two sides of the discussion. One is you know, what are the actual consequences of these different policy moves and how do they play out? Do they actually serve what, uh, you know, you say uh, joy loves or cares about? But there is also the side of developing our understanding of joy sensibilities, of actually what the standard is. And very much unlike the guy building the social welfare function, the Smith approach admits up front that that's loose, vague, and indeterminate. It's essentially an aesthetic matter. Um, And he's very clear about this. I mean, his his yeah. His, talking about justice, for example. Yes, it's particularly beyond commutative justice, um, uh, that namely distributive justice and and esteem justice, uh, which I believe Smith is participate. You know, is is talking. Um, so we need to engage them about you know again you know how things play out, and at the same time we're actually developing what our notions of joy's sensibilities are, what it is we think joy s- thinks is beautiful. Just like if we were to talk about a movie. Let's say I just saw Hugo, the new Scorsese film. And we could talk about it and this, blah, blah, blah. And to some extent it would... It would what do you it, give it on a scale of 1 to 10, Dan? I'd give it, I think, an 8. Okay. Um, We could talk but about I'm glad, that. But I'm glad to hear that. I don't want to I'm, give up. I haven't but, yeah. seen it yet. I'm looking forward to it now. Um. We could talk about, you know, is the movie successful? Is it effective? Would it do right? What it do wrong? But at the same time, we are developing our sense of what is a good movie. I mean, how do we develop our sense of what is a good movie? It's by watching and talking about movies. It's not a, like we have no. an algorithm, a social welfare function analogy to, you know, yeah. a good movie uh, function or something. No one's written down the formula for producing a good movie, and they never will. Right. In that sense, it's loose, vague, and indeterminate.
0: And it would be a mistake to think that we should work on that formula, because with enough effort and time, we'll figure it out. Right. It's better to recognize in advance.
1: You can develop criticism uh, that are loose, vague, and indeterminate, or like the rules that critics lay down for what is sublime and elegant in composition, as Smith puts it. Um, So you can develop. Points and principles and insights and, and some guide, you know some guiding maxims and so on, uh, but the idea of like working out the definitive algorithm is is preposterous, and it's something that that Smith sneered at or scoffed at. Um, That's a very
0: deep idea. So what you're suggesting uh, let me restate it, and um, let's talk about it for a minute. The, you're saying that the good life writ large, the good society, the good way to organize our interactions is not a question of cost-benefit analysis, and it's not a question of um, measuring the distribution of income, the Gini coefficient, or some other precise measure. Rather, it is more akin to how we feel about works of art, that there is something artful about... uh, the texture of daily life I agree with that I think that's a very profound idea and it is it is fundamentally at odds with modern uh, welfare economics the the measures of, of well-being and it's um, fundamentally difficult so if one wanted to pursue that enterprise is it a matter of discussing it talking about it exploring it Uh, I'll I'll ask a different way. Has film criticism advanced anything? Yeah, has it gotten better? Uh, I'm not sure. Film
1: has. Film's different. I wouldn't say it's better. Fortunately, it's a fairly free market. (laughs) Yeah, it is. uh, Fairly, yeah. Um, uh, I'm sure that a lot of the stuff on offer there, uh, I and each of us would find useful. And and, um, if we have any interest in the matter at all, be glad that stuff's there to, to to tap rather than not there. Um, so I do th- – and, and discussion and so on, conversation is, is sort of the only way to do it, including like the more systematic and re- responsible forms of conversation we call scholarship or science. Um, but yeah, it, 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 you know, even human welfare, I mean, even the individual and the notion that he knows what's good for him and what he wants to become – And what's going to make him more beautiful or happier or wiser or more virtuous, that in itself is – it's like that's clearly something the individual often does not have a good handle on and is constantly um, grappling with.
0: Well, yeah, our own – the choices we make are aesthetic in nature, right? The decisions we make about who to marry, where to go to college, what to study, what field to go into, those are – those are not scientific right. at all. Right, uh, And we tell stories about them to ourselves. That's we right. We craft our own narrative, our mm-hmm. own allegory of our life. and
1: We get committed to things, but then, you know, are we overly committed? Yeah. You know, could we, should we give up this commitment and then try to shift and become something else? But, yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: well, we're almost out of time. I, I, you want to say about uh, something else or two, so...
1: Yeah, I've got a a couple more benefits from declaring allegory. I'll just kind of mention these. Um, Making the allegory explicit, I think, helps to make it innocuous. You know, when we talk about joy as super knowledgeable, benevolent, having this godlike ability to communicate personally, the more we talk about that, the more we see it's not like the government. And the idea of, like, seeing the government as joy becomes more and more... Clearly ludicrous. wrong, ludicrous, yeah. exactly. So I think making explicit helps to make statist, you know, forms of joy innocuous or, or avoidable. Um, again, I think it helps us confess the looseness of aspects of our analysis. We've talked a little bit about that, particularly joy, sort of aesthetic sensibilities. Um, I think that the allegory can to some extent help to answer in a classical liberal way the yearning for larger meaning and connection. And, and, you know, your podcasts so often do this. They sort of strike that marvelous note or that marvelous feeling about, you know, being part of the vast concatenation and how we're actually contributing to it in our p- p- voluntary participation. Um, some appreciations for how it works. Um, and, and that can be rewarding, just like the guy, like we talked about, the guy actually reading wealth of nations, and then going out and making a lot of honest profit, you know, appreciating, being proud of himself for his contribution to universal benevolence.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, at the same time, I think the allegory can help people to see that they must subdue or re-channel sometimes the yearning for larger meaning and connection. Because this alleg—this is an allegory, and joy has these assumed powers and we're not going to realize that. We're not going to recapture sort of the cooperation of the small band or the family. And spelling and all that out,
0: sorry. If you want that, look to your family. Exactly. Don't
1: look to, don't look to That's Washington. exactly right. So it kind of teaches us to subdue certain of these yearnings for larger meaning and to rechannel things. And find uh, and satisfy our meanings, uh, you know, in our family, and our friends, and our job, and whatever, sports, whatever you're into, uh, and not politics. It's kind of like it's kind of like there's a, lib- you know, liberalism is not a philosophy of life, but I do think it helps in a philosophy of life, kind of telling the individual where not to look. Um, and I think the allegory is helpful that way. So Yogi Berra, this is my final remark, once said, if you don't know where you're going, you could end up somewhere else. And um, Theory of Moral Sentiments was published in 1759, and it was deeply allegorical. And very shortly thereafter, uh, people like Dugald Stewart and Thomas Brown and Thomas Reed protested allegory and moved away from it and influenced I think the future of liberalism, and I think the 19th and 20th century, uh, did not try to deny allegory, including the classical liberal tradition to to a large extent. So I think we we ended up somewhere else than where we were uh, at at first um, pointed with the theory of moral sentiments. And you think we ought to
0: go back to that other destination, I assume?
1: That other path, Yeah. My guest today
0: has been Dan Klein. Dan, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you very much, Russ. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.